Well, this morning we continue our series on questions asked and answer, and with a kind of subtitle of uh, understanding the New Testament. And our goal in the series is that you might uh, get a, a grip on what God has said through his individual authors of the story, his story, recorded for us uh, in the last third of the New Testament, uh, our last third of the Bible. Uh, we gave, gave an overview of the entire Bible, and then uh, we are centering in the 2011 uh, God's message uh, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And as we have gone there, we've also uh, dis- uh, made some distinctions about each one of the Gospels particularly, and we're going to look at that this morning. But before, uh, before we uh, launch into that, and, and I just want to warn you now that not only do I have a long message, but I'm going to add to it. So we're, there's going to be some, some additional things here. But, you know, this is, a, this is a, the dreaded Sunday of uh, preacher types like me because you're just wondering, are people going to remember to push their clocks an hour ahead? I don't know if you uh, did any just studying this past week, uh, Googling or whatever it might be, daylight savings time, but it has a rather interesting history. Do you know that the uh, first one who particularly, uh, at least in a public way, had uh, promoted uh, a daylight savings time experience was Benjamin Franklin. So if you don't like it, he's the one to blame. He wrote in France, interesting enough, when he was an ambassador there, uh, this essay, An Economical Project for Diminishing the Cost of Light. Wouldn't that be a great book to read when you can't sleep at night, right? Um, that was in 1784. It didn't quite catch on. Uh, our railroad industry uh, tried it 100 years afterwards for a, for a period of time. And then in World War I, um, we, during that particular crisis in the world, uh, our United States government decided to try to save some money that way. And then it was repealed in between the two wars. And then in World War II, it was reenacted. And it basically continued. Uh, but as you know, Americans are somewhat independent. And what was happening, people in various states were turning their clocks back at different times and so it was rather kind of confusing when you go from one state to the next. So in 1966, they decided, okay, once and for all, if you're going to adopt daylight savings time, you've got to d- use the same time frame as anybody else doing it. Of course, we still have some independents who choose not to do it, and that's like Hawaii and Arizona. But what's interesting to me this past week is, is some of the um challenges of daylight savings time we know we we lose an hour here and we gain it back you know october november whenever that is i think it's november now is uh they have some scientists who have done some looking at the negative effects of it um actually i was just thinking about a conversation i had with warren before coming in here and he's going to like this uh, particular um, statistic but um Stanford University and John Hopkins University did a, a study on it, and they reported that on the Monday following the time change, there are many more fatal traffic accidents. And um, on Monday, uh, I called all the elders to meet at 6.20 in the morning, 6.25 in the morning, so he was kind of giving me a bad time about that. Uh, but so if you, if you drive on Monday, be very, very careful. There's some crazy people out there. And then in 2008, there was a study done in, in Sweden, and they said... Uh, I don't know how they get this kind of statistic, but they said if you have heart conditions, you might want to be a little concerned about the Monday afterwards or the week afterwards because it said 7% increase in heart attacks the Monday after spring's daylight saving time. So stay at home, relax, don't get too, too stressed out. But what really bothered me more was the, the ways people said how you ought to prepare for spring ahead. Uh, some who are rather... I don't know what word you would use here. I don't think I like the word I used in the first service. So, but some people who are rather meticulous, uh, they said, well, what you ought to do is four days before daylight savings time, um, that first night, just go to bed 15 minutes early. 
then the next night go a half hour early, and then the next night 45 minutes early, and then when it's daylight savings time, all you have to do is add another 15 minutes, and people are already adjusted. The, the particular suggestion that I did not like was the one that said, hey, don't, don't get that complicated. Just sleep in on Sunday. Now, I'm glad you all decided not to do that, but that would be the dreaded way to deal with daylight savings time. Well, you know, as you think about it, no matter what you do in life, uh, none of your solutions are, can be described as perfect. And we've tried to develop the perfect time approach to the changing of the seasons, whatever like that. And no matter what, I've done some informal surveys, and some people like it and some people don't like it. And so it's, it's not a perfect solution. In fact, if you look at our world, we have to admit we don't live in a perfect world. And if you were living in Japan right now, that would be a duh because of the, the horrific experiences they've gone through. But what I want to say to you is, is the Bible's clear about that. We don't live in a perfect world. It's been marred by sin. And when the world fell, not only did it affect human life in terms of our attitude toward God, but there was a curse on the world as well. And so as we think about it, there, there is nothing perfect in this world, but there was one who was perfect. And as we go through this series on kind of getting a handle on the New Testament, and if you've got questions, we'll try to respond to them. We've had a variety of questions that we posed on the, we tried to answer on the website. But as we look at that, we need to understand that even though there isn't anything perfect in this world until Jesus makes it all new, there is the one who was perfect. And that was the message of Luke as he told the gospel, God's story, through his pen. He was particularly writing to a Greek audience, at least majoring on what they would be looking at. And if if they were a people that could be described, they, they liked perfection. They want those things that were just something that would attract you through your eye gate or, or those who could speak so well. And, and so they, they really were enamored with anything that was close to perfection. And so Jesus was presented as the perfect man. Now, there's a lot of ways you can try to get a handle on the New Testament. Some is using some mnemonic devices. I don't know if you used that when you were growing up. If you had a lot of dates or people to remember or some facts you might put in some crazy sentences and kind of figure out how that related to what you were supposed to remember well i decided today that i'd give you a little bit of a handle on on the gospel of luke by giving a mnemonic device that would summarize 24 chapters so i'm going to give you 24 points to begin with before i get to my other points all right so if you have your outlines this morning, this kind of help you out and i'm going to try to kind of stream some things with it as well but if you take the words Uh, Jesus Christ, the perfect man. There are 24 letters in those, uh, what, four words? Jesus Christ, the perfect, five words, okay. And so if you were to take a a phrase from each one of that, you could kind of get a handle on this. Now, I was going to do this message a different way, but since I'm going to add to it in the end, I'm going to go a little bit quicker on kind of seeing how this relates to the theme. And one of the things I want you to understand about studying the Bible is that not only do you want to understand the details, the individual verses or words or paragraphs or chapters, but it it is essential that you understand the big idea. Or you get caught up thinking the Bible is really about how I relate to God. No, it's really about how God relates to you. It's all about God. Okay, And so the big story is about what do we learn about Him, and on the other side, what do we learn about ourselves? 
Okay. So with that as a, as a backdrop, we want to kind of see the, the theme of Jesus Christ, the perfect man, seen through the story outlined by Luke. It begins at the beginning, which all stories ought to begin at. It begins with chapter 1. In chapter 1, it's Jesus. Jesus' birth foretold. And of course, if you have a perfect man, it would, it would be logical to think this perfect man came into being in a miraculous way. So you have Jesus, the perfect man, in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, you have the events during the, the childhood of Jesus. And so you see Jesus grow up. And we talked about it briefly last week. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus grew in, 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 uh, in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man. So Jesus grew physically, mentally, spiritually, socially. And we see Jesus living out his life. And it was perfect in terms of how he lived. Chapter 3, we have the Spirit descends on Jesus. If Jesus was the perfect man, there ought to be something that marks him as being different than any other man. Because the backdrop of Jesus being the perfect man is that we are imperfect. And so at his baptism, we have the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus. And we have the voice of God from on high saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So chapter 3 is the Spirit descends on Jesus. In chapter 4, we have uh, undefeated in battling Satan. If Jesus is the perfect man, it's, it's more than just an example of how we ought to respond to temptation, which we have many lessons there. But it's a demonstration that, that when Jesus was tempted and when he had all the, the powers of Satan upon him, he defeated Satan completely. And so he was the perfect man because he did not fall into sin. In chapter 5, we have Jesus, the perfect man, calling a man to follow him. And in Luke chapter 5, our life groups looked at the last week, we have Simon choosing to follow Jesus. Simon Peter following Jesus. And then it moves on as we look at that, as we look at Jesus, now we look at uh, Christ. Uh, we see that, that Jesus not only called an individual, but he called a group of people. And in chapter 6, we have challenging the 12. And so the, the, one, is, the one is called and the 12 is called. In chapter 7, we have healing the centurion servant. Now, chapter 7, that, that's one of those miracles that ought to be noted because Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. Wouldn't you like to be somehow recorded in God's uh, writings that he was, pretty, he was pretty pumped about you? <laughs> he thought that you were, you were somewhat unique and special, and particularly because you had faith. And here we had a Gentile, not a Jewish person, that, was, that amazed Jesus because of his faith. And then in chapter uh, 8, we have the raising of Jairus' daughter. We just had a uh, memorial service for Ruth Bauer this last uh, Saturday, yesterday. And as you think about the issue of life is what's going to happen after life? What's going to happen when we die? And Jesus not only demonstrated power of the grave as he rose from the dead, but he gave life to others who had died. So we have the raising of Jairus' daughter. In chapter 9, we have instruction on discipleship. Jesus, the perfect man, was also the perfect leader. And he called people to give up everything to follow him. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. In chapter 10, you have the 70 sent in return. Jesus not only called the one, he not only called the 12, he called the 70. And they went out representing him. And when they came back, he said, if there's one thing you need to be excited about, not just that I gave you power to raise those who uh, um, are in illness to health, but to realize that what you ought to praise God about is that you are part of God's family. In chapter uh, 11, we have the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And again, as you look at the perfect man, the perfect man was not a, a man who was never criticized. Sometimes we would think if something was perfect, that, that would be ideal because how could anybody 
respond negatively to that which is perfect, perfection. But as we've said many times before, the issue with those who rejected Jesus was not whether what he had done was something that had actually been done. They could not deny the fact that he had done the miraculous. There were were too many uh, occasions of that. Every disease that came to Jesus was healed. You talk about a health plan. (laughs) Jesus, for that period of time, eliminated disease in Israel. Everyone who came to him was healed. How could you criticize that? Well, they came up with a way. And what they did is they attributed his power, not to God, but to the evil one. And so he said, it's not the Holy Spirit that's giving you power. It's the evil spirit that's giving you power. So we see the perfect man. We see the perfect man begin. We see the perfect man call people to faith. We see people, the perfect man doing the miraculous. We see the, the perfect man being criticized and rejected. Well, say so we have Jesus Christ. Now we have the perfect man. In chapter 12, we have the teaching on hypocrisy and covetousness. Jesus being the perfect man, the perfect leader, was also the perfect teacher. And he could tell when people were looking good on the outside, but they were evil on the inside. And really spoke right into the religious crowd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said, your heart is evil. And in fact, he went on and said, you are like leaven. Leaven that does not rise that which is good, but it raises that which is destructive and evil. In chapter 13, we have the healing of the humble. It is so true. As you look at a perfect man, in some ways, and we had this even in the disciples of Jesus, when Jesus would demonstrate his power, they would fall down and say, depart from me, for I am an unclean, I am a sinful man. But on the other hand, you had those who were really needy, and they weren't fearful of Jesus. They were able to run to Jesus because they knew that he would care. And so as Jesus brings healing, it's because those who were in need recognized their need. And he had that, that woman who was caught in infirmities for 18 years that came to Jesus. Chapter 14, you have the exhorting of the Pharisees. And again, he speaks into their lives and saying, don't you get it? You are so preoccupied with what you think the, the Word of God says in the Old Testament, the law, that you, you don't get it. He said, you don't think that God gave Sabbath for the good of man? <laughs> you, you're making God's day the worst day in the week. And he said, so you don't think... God is pleased with healing on the Sabbath? And if it was in our world today, he'd say, really? 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 He was healed? And you don't think this is good? Seriously. Seriously. And so he exhorts the Pharisees to look beyond their own selfishness and look at what God is really doing. In chapter 15, we have the prodigal son and and we'll, in a moment, we're going to look at two key things related to the Gospel of Luke. And, and these two things will be on the test. So you have to make sure you get this one down. There is a key verse and there's a key chapter. The key chapter in the Gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 15. And the story of the prodigal son. And not only the prodigal son, but it's the story of the, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And, and we really get at the heart of, of why Jesus came. In chapter 16, we have the example of rich man and Lazarus. And again, if you want to know about the perfect man, the perfect man has a perfect message that uncovers all of life. Those who will go into God's presence for eternity in heaven and those who reject him that will spend eternity in hell. In chapter 17, we have the response of the ten lepers. You know, if you think about 
being in the presence of Jesus would have been an amazing experience. Even if you were just a looky-loo, just watching what he's done. I'd, I'd, I'd just been willing to just, just to be there to see it or to hear it. But what, what if you were one of those people who experienced it in its deepest level? You know, leprosy was the, the sin of, of disease. It was the sin of, of uncleanness. It was the sin in, in, in the, the, the condition in which you could not even worship God in a public way. And God through his son, Jesus Christ, healed these ten lepers. And most are familiar with that story. When they all left, how many came back? One. Only one showed gratitude for the the greatness of this perfect man who brought full healing into his life. And so often, isn't, isn't that our sin? As we think about this perfect one who came for us, and our lives are not filled with gratitude and thankfulness, but of just selfishness. And so then we move on, and then you have in chapter... Uh, 18, you have the failure of the rich young ruler. And really, in many ways, this could also be known as a key chapter because in this, it really contrasts Jesus who was perfect and not only that rich young ruler, but everyone else who was imperfect. It, it, it contrasts Jesus who is not only good, but it recognizes that we are not good. Remember the conversation as the rich young ruler comes to him and he said, uh, good teacher, good rabbi. And Jesus comes back and said, why do you call me good? I mean, part of the question was, how well do you know me? <laughs> but secondly, he was saying, do you really understand what you mean when you call someone good? Now, we think in terms of the American grading system, you know, A is excellent and B is good and C is average, whatever. You know, to say someone is really good means he's without fault. And the problem was not only did he didn't understand just how good Jesus is, he didn't really recognize how good he wasn't. Because Jesus tried to draw out of him his sinful condition. Well, have you obeyed all the laws? Oh, yes, since I was a little child. And he realized it was all, he did not realize how superficial his walk approaching God was. So the goodness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus in contrast to someone who, who might have been good by human standards but fell so short. And that's the challenging thing as you think about the gospel. We are not measuring ourselves up with other people. We can all find somebody that we might consider ourselves a little better than them. Than, than, uh, we're better than them. There's got to be somebody worse than me out there. But that's not, the, that's not the measuring stick. The measuring stick, how well do you measure up to God? Continuing telling the story of, of Jesus, you have in chapter 19, the entry into Jerusalem. And just for free here, as I, as I came up with these titles of these chapters in a way to kind of summarize the whole book, you, you can put different things in here. In fact, if I were to rewrite this, I would probably put the encounter with Zacchaeus. Because the encounter with Zacchaeus was such a, such a statement of why Jesus came. Because right after that, after he met Zacchaeus, and we'll tell that story a little bit, that statement came the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. In chapter 20, we have Christ's authority question. And again, they, they question him, obviously, when they said that you do it by the power of Beelzebub, the evil one, rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. But here, they try to they kind of question his ability to handle Scripture. Never do that with Jesus, all right? Or, or to be able to somehow ascertain what is really going on. So they ask him, well, by what authority do you do this? And, and, and he said, well, I'll answer that question with a question. Doesn't that always frustrate you when people do that? 
You know, you ask them a question and they say, well, how about this? And say, well, answer my question first. Well, that was a standard way of teaching by rabbis. It was kind of a formal way to do that. And really, if you did it skillfully, your, your follow-up question to a question was not to somehow divert the discussion or take the pressure off you and put the pressure on them. It was to clarify the intent of the question. And to clarify the intent of the question was, are you really trying to find out where my authority comes from? Or are you somehow trying to trip me up? And so he said, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Was he a prophet? Where did he come from? At that point, they were stuck. Because there was a lot of that day, if you were to blaspheme what God was doing, it was worthy of death. And they knew the crowd acknowledged John as a prophet from God. And if they acknowledged that John did what he did by the power of God or the authority of God, then they had acknowledged that what the message of John's was was to prepare the way for Jesus as being the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So they were caught in dilemma. If we say that he was a prophet of God, then they had acknowledged his message was that Jesus was the Lamb of God. If they chose not to do that, that he was some kind of a false prophet, then they would incur the wrath of the people. So Jesus was perfect at responding to to life's questions, particularly those who are dishonest questions. And then you have the rest of the the book. You have chapter 21. He talks about the second coming, and he announces not only he he was coming the first time, but he was coming again. In chapters 22 and 23 and 24, as we think of the man Jesus, we see Jesus being mocked, the mocking and beating of Jesus in chapter 22. In chapter 23, we have a perfect man crucified And in chapter 24, no grave can hold Jesus. So they're in a kind of a running way of looking. Here's a summary of 24 chapters of of Luke's story about Jesus unfolded under the theme of presenting Jesus as the one, if someone came from God, what would he be like? He'd be just like Jesus in every dimension of life. But as we try to summarize this book, what is the key verse that kind of puts it in context? Well, in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we have, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, because I'm going to add to this message a little bit, I'm not going to spend as much time on both Luke 19 or Luke 15. But let me just share a little bit about the context of Luke 19. Luke 19 is the story of Zacchaeus, that wee little man. If you grew up in Sunday school, you heard that little story, the wee little man uh, came running to find Jesus. And as he came to run to find Jesus, it was was so surprising in so many different ways because uh, men didn't run. Only children ran. Now, Zacchaeus was the size of a child, but he had a position within the community of being rather feared because he had the ability to assign taxes as much as he wanted to to anyone uh, in town and to occur a prophet from that but he had heard about jesus now zacchaeus though he had grown in wealth had lost some of his of esteem in the community and he had lost some of his rights he no longer could worship publicly in the synagogue and so he he was hearing about this jesus who not only was a miracle worker but had shown love to those other people would not show love to But being a wee little man, you know, he couldn't see Jesus. And so as the crowd came around, almost like the rose parade, you get there late, you can't see anything because you're four rows back. And so he climbs up a tree, which is not exactly like an adult would do. Only children did that. But this wee little man came up a tree. And so he could at least look at Jesus. At this point, all we know is that, that 
Zacchaeus was curious, but there was no way he was going to get close to, the, to be able to have a conversation with Jesus. And yet Jesus stops, turns to Zacchaeus and says, today I will eat in your house. And what that did is it illustrated again, even though Zacchaeus showed some curiosity, it was Jesus who sought him out because he recognized it was Zacchaeus who was lost. Now we're going to see in a moment that this simple illustration in the life of Jesus to Zacchaeus, that he came to seek out that which no one else wanted to spend time with, is the story of the New Testament. It's the story that, that Luke highlights. Because it's not so much that we seek after God. Romans 3.10 said no one seeks after that which is good. It's that God is seeking after us. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. So in, in the midst of all the detail I've given you this morning, here, here's where we've gone. We've simply presented Jesus in the emphasis that Luke was inspired to write, writing to Greeks, presenting Jesus as the perfect man. Jesus is the perfect man in everything that he did. As the perfect man, he came to do something. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. As the perfect man, he illustrated that in so many different ways. Look at Luke chapter 15, beginning with verses 1 and 2. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. This is Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, they just called him a man. We would call him, what kind of a man? A perfect man. This perfect man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke the parable to them, saying... Now, again, if you remember the backdrop of, of this kind of criticism from the Pharisees, is, is they thought, well, you know, if you really, really, if you're really the Son of Man, if you're really the Son of God, then you would really understand these are not the kind of people you want to spend time with. You, you want to you spend time with the good people. And what they miss is Jesus comes to spend time with the needy people because the good people don't see their needs. They don't see that they're really not good. And so this is the whole backdrop of this is that radically they could not conceive of a prophet of God, much less the Son of God, seeking and saving that which was lost, seeking and saving that which was not good, which was evil, which was selfish, and all kinds of sin. And yet, that's what he does for anyone. doesn't matter where our social standing is. If we don't see that we're lost, if we don't see that we're not good, we will not be found. And, and so he tells a, a, a few stories to try to get it to them. Don't you understand? This is the heart of God. Like the heart of, of, of certain things you can just see in life where when you lose that which is precious to you, you'll do everything to find it. And so he tells the story of the, the lost sheep. And the story of the lost sheep, they had 99, you know, in safe confines, but one had wandered off. And the good shepherd leaves everyone, every sheep, to find that which was lost. And then he says in, in more 
powerful terms, the response in heaven. Verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, speaking into their heart, that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Giving the picture, those 99 weren't really of his fold. But the one who was lost, that recognized it was lost and was in need, he rescued and found. The story of Luke chapter 15, you have these three words to summarize the whole chapter. Lost, found, and joy. He, he tells the story now of the lost coin. And, and this, this woman has ten coins. And then she loses one. And it, it, it says she, she, uh, she does everything to find, to, and carefully to find it. Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why did this woman do everything she could to find this one coin? Because this coin was of supreme value. Some have said that it was a, a a uh, headdressing in which was symbolic of her of her her marriage and there were 10 coins with it and all of it was a, rem- a memory of that union between her and the one she loved and and lived with and it was like li- losing a wedding ring living li- losing an engagement ring and you went everywhere to find that which was lost and then you have the story of the prodigal son and we don't we're not going to take the time this morning to tell that story. You have the reasons these other things were lost. Why, would, why was the sheep lost? Because it was a dumb sheep. It wandered off. And when we get lost, you can explain it sometimes. We're just, we're just being stupid. We're just kind of, we, we're clueless. We're naive. We're deceived. And we just kind of wander. And we need someone to find. We don't, we don't know how to get back. We don't know how we got lost. And we don't know how to get back. And Jesus seeks out that lost sheep. Why was the coin lost? Probably simply because it's careless. I, there are a lot of things I consider value, but I don't take care of them sometimes. And I wonder, man, why, why can't I find that which I think is important? Because I was careless. And, and then the, the story of the prodigal son, you remember the story. You have the two sons and the, the loving father. The one son wants to, to have it now, and so takes his inheritance now. The older son, who actually was going to get twice with the younger son, stays and finally, the younger son comes to his senses, as it describes it, and, and just hopes that there will be mercy from the heavenly father, his, his earthly father, to receive him back, and he receives him back. And then the older son doesn't quite get it. It's like he completely doesn't get it and thinks he, he is worthy of that and more. But as you think, why did, that, why did that son leave? Because he thought he knew better than his father. And see... When we, uh, when we wander off and get lost, sometimes simply because we're acting like a dumb sheep, sometimes we're, because simply we're careless, and sometimes we simply think we know better than God. But, but the story of the gospel is that Jesus comes to seek and to save that which is lost. And those who don't think they're lost will never be found. Why? Because they're not lost. But those who are in desperate need of someone coming to rescue them, Jesus will be there. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that I was going to add to the message. Here's where I was going to close. But some today, 
um, as, as they look at a God who is seeking and save that which is lost, will say, well, but how, how can you believe there is such a God as that? Because if there is a God like that, that who is good, then why does he allow so much suffering in this world? We're familiar with probably most of us on that story in John chapter 9 where uh, the disciples and Jesus come up along that uh, man who was born blind and they ask the question, well, whose sin was it that caused this, this man to be blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Of course, Jesus says it really wasn't either. Um, it was... Because the manifest grace of God was going to be displayed. And, of course, Jesus healed him. And so sometimes when we see people suffering, well, I wonder what they did to get what they got. And sometimes, you know, we can wrestle with that. But how about, how about groups of people? How about like a nation like Japan? Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Jesus actually answers that question for us today with this analysis of what had happened in his day. There were present at that season some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that the Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Essentially, they asked him a question, why did, this, why did this happen to people in Israel? Why did this happen to people in Galilee? And the backstory of this is, is that in Galilee there were some zealots there who were, who, were, who were committed in faith and committed to bring freedom back to the nation of Israel. And, and Pilate and Rome were a little bit nervous about them, so they said, hey, we're going to teach them a lesson. So Pilate went, and at a time in which they were worshipped, they slaughtered them. And then as the animal sacrifices were being put on the altar, their blood was poured on with the blood of the Galileans. And I, I'm sure the people of Israel, how, how could God allow this? Was there some hidden sin about these Galileans we weren't aware of, and so God was using a pagan uh, leader to punish his people like he had done in the past? And Was it all because of some specific sin? And, and he said, no, no, that's not the point here. The point is, bad things do happen. Life is short. And are you prepared for what comes next? If you do not repent, you will perish. Well, how about natural disasters? How about when Mother Nature does something like in Japan? Well, look what he says here in verse uh, 4. Or or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Jesus answers his own question and says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus took an object lesson there in terms of real-life conditions where people had experienced not only suffering but death at the hand of an evil governor of Israel, Pilate, and here by something natural that happened where a tower fell. And try to explain why did this specific thing happen. He did not go on an explanation of that, but he simply said that this is an object lesson for all of us to ask ourselves the question, if we had perished physically in that experience, would we be ready for what comes next? Anyone who does not repent will perish forever. So what's, this, what's the point of the gospel of Luke? What's, what's the point of Jesus coming? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And the condition everyone needs to understand on this planet is that we are all lost. The reason, the question, you know, why do bad things happen to good people is really answered, there are no good people out there. We don't like to say that because we know some people are gooder than other less good people. But that's not the point. There are no good people out there. We are all, this is a hard message to hear, we are all deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus came to rescue those who are lost, who will respond to His search by repenting and turning to Him. What's the gospel? It's admitting your need and turning from your sin. It's believing that Jesus fully paid the penalty for your sins and rose again. It's committing to follow Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior. It's recognizing that apart from Jesus finding me, I perish. And I run to Him asking for His grace and mercy. Let's pray. As Jesus